0: Welcome back to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man?
1: Steve, that was the most energetic introduction I've ever heard you say. It must be because you're on like 10 cups of coffee at I, 7 a.m.
0: <laughs> I am. I'm on the, the John Marcus coffee train, you know, for for years. This is the behind the scenes. For years, John knows that I, I, I only drink coffee. When it was time to write, that's it. it was it was not very frequently, not a coffee drinker. Every time John and I would get together, John would take me to some fancy coffee place <laughs> and you really know, good
1: I'm, coffee too, like original yeah. bean, organic, single origin, you name it.
0: <laughs> so and I'm just like, uh, whatever, I'm not writing. Um, but now, let me tell you with uh, with the newborn. Coffee is God's gift, so
1: coffee is king. Welcome to the dark side.
0: Congrats! There, no, yes, thank you. There's On no, the there's no getting around it, though. There's, if I didn't have coffee, I might not exist. So, it's a, uh, it's where we're at. So anyways, that's why we've been gone for a couple of weeks. I've been MIA because, well, you know, our schedule's all over the place. But you been trying get to keep it...
1: a little little human being alive. No, yes. No be feet. It's not easy.
0: And <laughs> it's a tough coaching cast. So, yes. you know, um, but here we are. So here we are. And we're going to give the people what they want. Oh, so, yeah,
1: baby. Hey. This has been awesome since we last had a podcast before Steve became a father outright. We have made some amazing updates to the Scarlet Clubhouse. We've made it way more interactive. That's kind of our agenda for 2023. Steve and I had this project interaction where we wanted to get the clubhouse to be a more interactive environment. And let me tell you about the couple awesome things we're doing. Number one, which totally we took from the goat, Fred Wilt is a how they train category with channels. So we have different scholars, basically documenting their training journey right now in real time for either themselves or their team. So we have one very uh, well-known high school cross country and college coach documenting the summer training for his cross country team in real time. You have different masters athletes at different stages in their journeys, ultra runners, uh, track runners, um, young just out of college, uh 5k runners it's awesome i mean we have one of the world record holders in the women's uh, masters marathon age groups in the 60s she's documenting her training like it is amazing thing every day i go on and i just learn so much I go God, that's a really interesting way to do this or man I, why did i think of that like i'm telling you it is you know god's gift that we have these communication tools and we basically can have these books of how they train but in real time
0: it's awesome I mean, that's what it's all about. It's copying the OG, Fred Wilt, who, you know, was the the, the guy who essentially started Coach's Education.
1: He was like, we should just share everything. <laughs> he did. And yeah, you that, know man.
0: what? He also coached a world record holder while sharing everything and a bunch of other athletes while also, I believe, working for the FBI. Um, so... Yeah. We're just trying to work in the footsteps. Well, that's awesome, John. I mean, that's what it's all about because as a scholar program, it's not only to get courses, not only to get clubhouse, you get you get interaction, you get sharing, you got monthly Zoom talks. We're just kind of bringing it to you because we think it's the best place on, on the planet to up your coaching game. I mean, that's and not, and not to toot
1: our own horns, but you know, there was a conversation happening there that really warmed my heart. It was around surrounding coaches' education and certification. And people are like, hey, what certification should I get? Where's the most valuable learning opportunities? And they threw in a whole bunch of different, really useful certifications, traditional ones, as well as ones that might be a little bit more uh, unique and uh, exoteric. But 99% of the people said, I get the most learning from the clubhouse from interacting with my peers, my colleagues, peppering questions to Steve and I. Um, And that just like struck a chord with me. So thank you to everyone who said that, who thinks that. That's awesome. Like it was meant to be the continuous learning environment for us and where we just can have those daily dialogues. And one more thing that we got to talk about on the project interaction is we now have weekly live streams within the clubhouse so we have our our monthly talks which is these big you know more formal things that steve gets all fancy on and does on zoom this one is just like down and dirty hey every thursday morning on the west coast time we get together and we just talk about workout talk or talk shop and you know we talked about wickets we've talked about strength and conditioning we've talked about what the topic we're going to dive deeper into today which is flux training reimagined with traditional workouts And it's a really robust Q&A and nine times out of 10, we also then go on tangents and just start talking about things like nasal breathing or different type or like sodium bicarbonate and other things, again, in real time to bring even more value to scholars who are paying over a dollar a day for this, which... I, someone told me like, why are you not charging ten dollars a day? I go, I don't know, because Steve and I,
0: we're, you, you we're know, horrible we, businessmen. We, <laughs> That's we, why we, we might have to. I've I've now got to start a college fund, and the rate of college cost is is it could be it it's probably going to be astronomical in eight, 18 years, and scholarships will probably be gone or something like that. So. So, you know, we might get in before, you know, my wife demands that we raise the raise the rates to fund our, our newborn. So, but, you know, that's awesome, John. And that's really what it's all about. It reminds me of the coaching conversations you have at track meets or after track meets or at uh, coaches conventions where you're You know, the magic often happens, not in the presentations, but in the conversations after the in-between times. That's what we're trying to create online. And we think that, you know, the virtual world gives us a way to do that. And the other thing I'd say is on on the price point, I think, you know, we try to have it very fair, but one of the reasons I think it's important to charge is not only, yeah, it's business for John and I, but the most important part is it's a filter is if you're going to pay for something and there's research on this, you're going to invest in it yourself. You're going to be more attentive. You're going to be fairer. You're going to have difficult conversations, right? And, and, and that means difficult conversations on, on um, on coaching. I mean, John just mentioned nasal breathing. He likes it more than I do. I'm not a huge fan of it. But that's the point. We get to have these conversations without turning into yelling matches or screaming matches on Let's Run or whatever. We get to talk about difficult topics, you know, on Norwegian training and what's hype and what's real. You know, I'll I'll give a, a shout out to ourselves or pat us out on the back is, you know, there was a recent article by Jonathan Galt for Let's Run that traced the history of the Norwegian double threshold. It was a good article. But guess who talked about it, A, on the podcast in 2022, us, you can go back and listen to it, and then before then, in the clubhouse and on our Zoom discussions, tracing everything on it. And the point is that, like, we, go- we are able to go deep because we've got such a great coaching audience that just, you know... Is, is here for it and says, you know what, we want to go deep on this kind of esoteric topic or the history of how we got here. Let's nerd out for an hour. And that's what it's all about.
1: Yeah, it, it really is just about perspective, right? I mean, there is no essentially wrong or right way. It's just, hey, I do it like this. I do it like this. I'm really excited about this way. Hey, here's a, a dynamic I think is useful. And we co-create these things through this dialogue. And that's the important thing about discourse and dialogue is that it is a um, back and forth, a co-creation rather than, you know, kind of a competition where one person is trying to set their agenda and get their agenda to be the accepted default agenda um, versus just simple rapport of, hey, there's a lot of roads to Rome. Here's the path this person took and that person took. And let's see if there's any kind of synergies or um, any kind of uh, things in common with those paths and also let's look at those things that are wildly different and divergent in those paths (laughs) and ask why and that's the beauty of it right and that's why we come back to certain things like say flux training that we're going to talk about today when we look through the thread of history of workout design and workout application throughout almost every distance running um, powerhouse program from the high school college club all the way professional ranks there is an element either really heavy or even kind of light of flux training in there even if it's not called flux and we just again the reason we call it flux is because it's about fluctuation metabolic fluctuation right so we create this catch-all term called flux to signify metabolic fluctuation you call it lactate fluctuation if you'd like if you want to use that as your biomarker anchor that's okay But that's really the goal of what we're trying to do is create this fluctuation in this or metabolic flexibility, as a lot of people talk about uh, these days in the cancer and bio-research role, and have that acumen, you know, on a regular basis applied so that the body is ready, able, and willing to clear lactate, buffer lactate, consume lactate, other metabolites in the moment as you're doing an activity versus having to take a break, slow down, back off, for, let that pro- for uh, allowing that process to happen.
0: Absolutely. So that's what we're going to get in today is flux training, but in a slightly different manner, traditional workouts reimagined as flux training. And I think that this is going to be interesting because, you know, there's just staple workouts in the running world that have been passed down through generations that just stick around. And that's, that's great. You know, you've got your Daniel's 20 minute tempo or four mile tempo that just kind of sticks around. You've got, you know, your 10 by 400 banisters, you got, you know, your K repeats, you've got all sorts of workouts that just are staples. And if you look at almost anybody's training at some point, they're going to be in there. And what we want to do today is kind of reimagine that and give you some other options for, How to, you know, get some of the benefits or twist these uh, traditional workouts in a new manner to use them in a flux type of way.
1: It's essentially right. Cheeseburger, french fries, and milkshakes and soda pop (laughs) workouts. Like just go tos. everyone that, you know, knows they work, they have value. There's nothing wrong with them at all. But what Steve and I are doing here is like, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to throw a brioche bun on this cheeseburger with some fresh uh, farm-sourced bacon, and then we're gonna have truffle fries. And then we're gonna have, so all we're doing is just making it a little bit more fancier, but the reasons why we're gonna talk about the need to maybe be a little fancier, will allow it so the athlete can one, recover a lot quicker but between workout to workout. Two, get a lot faster because recovery rate is um, expedient. And then three, also have a kind of what we're finding in the clubhouse from reports of a lot of coaches who are applying flux workouts is more race day robustness so they're able to handle surges changes of paces unpredictability and say hey yeah i can do this stuff really can not just you know woo woo um uh, good vibes you know fingers crossed, talk but actual like put the pedal to the metal and go do these things in the moment when it's challenging because I have been appropriately prepared physically, metabolically, and emotionally. Absolutely. So, let's. Where do you want to start? Let's start off the granddaddy of them all: mile repeats.
0: The all granddaddy
1: right. of them all, Steve. We're going out. We're coming out hot, baby. Off the rip. Let's do all it. Right. All <laughs> right, mile repeats. Let's go. So, what I think is, I what we did is we traced the history of kind of our current modern concept aerobic to Dr. Kenneth Cooper and co who essentially quantified, um, off of, uh, I think, um, Steve remind me of Van Aken's coach and the heart rate phenomena or start of the heart rate.
0: Oh, um, um, Gershler
1: and Rindell. Yeah. yeah. Gershler and Rindell. Sorry. The name was, Save me. So Gershon Rydell, like, really like quanti- started to quantify training more scientifically, quote unquote, numerically based off heart rate. Then Kenneth Cooper took that to the next level and said, anything that gets the heart rate up is good. We're going to call that aerobic and we got to do it. Walking, jogging, jazz exercise, biking, hiking, you name it, right? And then we got this paradigm of aerobic being intrinsically linked to the pump and heart only. And from that, we had all these really fancy markers that came out like VO2 max. And while they're really important and do have value, we ended up over-indexing in them for a couple of decades, right? And what happened was a lot of countries that over-indexed on the VO2 max or the heart um, focused paradigm model of training, we kind of di- weren't that really competitive in distance running. So mile repeats come from that era where we're like oh vo2 max is running hard for three to five minutes taking a big break a rest interval for like you know almost one to one work to rest ratio and then doing it again because the idea was to stress the heart that was what was sold to us was that 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 was the impulse or impetus for that type of session now it works and it does have value But it's a really hard workout because you have to run at like 5K or 3K pace, which is like pretty fuck, you know, excuse my French here, hard, multiple times, like, you know, five, six times in a row. And it takes a lot out of the athlete, no matter how fit you are, because it's really depleting on glycogen, really depleting emotionally, really depleting it in a lot of ways, shape or form. I've never been anyone here, anyone be like, oh yeah, we got hard mile repeats today. It's gonna to be fun. Usually everyone's like, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. So we wanna get that stimulus that the mild, you know, hard mile repeats at that 3K, 5K, quote unquote, high intensity threshold offers us. But we don't wanna break down the athlete. We don't wanna deplete their glycogen stores excessively so that then we have this two or three day recovery time horizon afterwards where we gotta essentially take a break for training for 48 to 72 hours just to get like, you know, back up to the snuff. So that's the dilemma we face with the traditional hard, um, mile repeat workout that is tried and true and used by so many.
0: That's a great way to put it. And you know, actually I'm going to, we're going to go back in history here all the way back into, I don't know, 2007, 2008, when I, when I was coaching high school kids, while still in college. and. You know, one of the things that I noticed is exactly what you said. I said, like, man, we're doing these mile repeats and these kids are just dying <laughs> because it's supposed to be at, like, you know, or K repeats or whatever at VO2 max, like cranking. You know, we're doing a Marley and cross-country season. It's a billion degrees out in Houston humid. And we're just we're just going to the well doing these things that are, quote unquote, supposed to, like, be aerobic. Cross country training stuff, so we scrapped them, and in their place, and I'm I pulled it up right now. Literally, I'm looking at the schedule. I replaced it with three sets of four by four hundred with forty seconds rest, longer rest between sets, no faster than five minute or five k pace. Now, holy think crap.
1: Of that. That's the 400 meter drill right there. Yeah, yeah. You're you're thinking of it
0: and it's just like, and that's not a lot of volume there. But like what we did over time is we would build that volume in the 400s or sometimes go to 500s or 600s. And essentially what we did was really short rest, you know, where you're still running at 5k pace. But what does that do? It actually keeps it aerobic and able to handle it. And you're getting some of this 5k specific work without... Hammering it into the well until you're actually ready to, let's let's say do some race prep if you wanted to, where you kind of just go to the well where you're like, we're gonna do mile repeats to get ready for this, right? And I think that was for me eye opening because the kids ran fast and I'm like, yo, we're just doing literally sets of 400s at at 5k pace. This is kind of slow. <laughs> like this isn't that hard but they were running well and what that told me is that we can do spices of work manipulate things and like get this aerobic adaptation at faster speeds if we manipulate it correctly and what i would say is okay how does that translate to flux now well we can simply do you know maybe what you do is and i've done this before as well is you take those 400s Instead of a standing short rest, you convert it to a 100-meter float. And you do sets of 400s at around 5K pace, right? With a 100-meter float, you have longer rest between sets. You can accumulate those. And I guarantee you, you're going to get, A, the rhythm of running faster. But B, because of the float and short rest and longer rest between sets, you're going to keep it where you're aerobic instead of draining. And you're going to improve your performance More so without the danger of just frying yourself.
1: Yeah, it's so, so funny. Like, you know, if anyone who's been in the clubhouse knows, like I use exclusively three quote unquote drills with my high school program this year, the 100 meter drill, the 200 meter drill, and the 400 meter drill. I go into depth about what those are, but they're essentially all flux style workouts, right? And the 400 meter drill is exactly what Steve described. It's repeat bouts at goal, 3K pace, with a work to rest ratio of one to a half. So if the kid wants to run 10 minutes for the 3K, um, it's just 80 seconds per quarter. You know, then the rest is going to be 40 seconds standing. Now you can progress it, as Steve said, to include a more active um, recovery component, like a 100 meter float, and have that be, you know, in that 40 seconds to 100 meters. Or you can be more static and standing. The important thing to understand is. Is one better than the other? No, it's what is most valuable is, again, the metabolic fluctuation that you're gonna get from that different style of uh, intermittent recovery between those quarters in a set. Now, if you stand, for most people, I take standing rest because we know that creatine phosphate stores tend to resynthesize to about 50% within about 45 to 60 seconds, which is significant, right? Um, that's important because what we're happening with lactate or that expression of glycolysis and the ability to clear, buffer, and consume it is if we start to overwhelm locally the tissues with that. That's when we get that shunting or that shoveling effect going to the bloodstream, creating acidosis and slowing us down. So those little intermittent bouts or injections of 40 seconds recovery actually go a long, long way to help uh, rebalance the internal blood chemistry, if you will, uh, but not corrode the metabolic training effect that we seek to get through aerobic adaptations. And again, just remembering when we talk about aerobic, we're talking about mitochondria. There's a great, great, great new paper um, out. It was like the last thing I heard from Steve three weeks ago before he went off. You know, he went rogue into babyland, and I hadn't heard from him. Called the Metabol or the the Molecular Athlete that was put out as this meta review by one of the like. Godfathers on mitochondrial um, health uh, and wellness in in athletics, John Hawley and Co, and they talk about updating our understanding of energy system development to creatine phosphate, glycolysis, and mitochondria, which is a stand-in for that CP um, anaerobic, quote unquote, aerobic, quote unquote. Because when we know those mechanisms at play, we can manipulate them a lot better. And it's just like, it's a beautiful thing to read that. So if you haven't checked that paper out, it's really digestible. um, The first half of it, if you're really into like enzymatic suppressions, PGC1 alpha, all that jazz, the second half, you'll gobble it up. If that's way over your head, just stick to sections one through three, and you'll get a lot of value out of it.
0: There we go. Yeah, I love that reconceptualization of it because it really kind of gets away from the junk of anaerobic aerobic that confuses everybody and even confuses us. Um, So anyways, I I love this short interval style, I think especially for high school kids. And I agree for what I I tend to think of it is high school kids should probably stand once you get to college, you can start introducing some floats on this stuff, but I love utilizing this. And all I would say is, um, you know, be the artist, like how many do you decide in the sets or how much rest between sets? This is where you're the artist as a coach, like knowing where you're kind of pushing people too much and how much they can handle it. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna, Go I'm, ahead, gonna I'm gonna throw a another traditional one and, and mix it up here a little bit. So a traditional cross country workout, what what's one that's staple? Hill repeats. That's what I say. (laughs) You do, you do your four hundred hard uphill or whatever it is. You do your hill repeats. You jog all the way back down, and then you go hard again. It's like the early introduction to "quote unquote" speed work, right? The old adage: hills are speed work in disguise. Well, I. I did this actually one year in, for college kids, but I think this is... I got the idea actually from a variation of, of Lydiard circuits. I think you can turn hills into a really cool flux workout. Even if you just have a hill that goes up, then you got to make it all the way down down. But what you can do is instead of going hard up that hill, as you take the pace down just a little bit, right... And you go kind of moderately hard, maybe eight K, ten K effort up up that hill, maybe five K effort depending on the length. Um, and then instead of getting to the top and slow and then, you know, trudging back down, what you do is you kind of keep that that turnaround and then go steady down the hill. And the thing is going steady down the hill isn't that hard because you're going down a hill. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So it's not, I'm going to put effort going into this. It's you're going to, I think Lydiard called it, like you let yourself kind of, I think it was, I forget the actual verbiage, but he was like, let yourself go, let yourself float down it because you're using that momentum. You lean into it just a little bit and you just kind of flow down it. And what you do is you create this flux type workout out of hill repeats because you've now increased the, um, The rest and recovery part a little bit so it's again not jogging slow easy but you've you've increased it so metabolically you're you're clearing out stuff a little bit better um you're shifting how you're using your you know your your stride and biomechanics are go from shuffle to actually running while you're doing this, which I think is important because that means you're recruiting muscles and muscle fibers in the way you normally do running instead of kind of just shuffling down there and you're getting, you're training your body how to kind of clear things out and utilize things aerobically while having normal kind of mechanics and muscle fiber recruitment. Uh, So there's all sorts of good things. And I, I'm a I'm a big fan of this. Again, it depends on what kind of hill you had. I remember at Houston, we found we don't have a ton of hills, but we found this 300 meter long hill that then we could go across a bridge and then down about 400 meters of a gradual down, cross a bridge, and then be back at the bottom of the hill. So it made for this perfect little loop where we were, you know, moderately hard up, cross the bridge. And then cruise down it and then go straight into the hill again. And you have this kind of flux like training. And the last thing I'll say on this is this works really well because when you look at cross country, what do you do when you get to a hilly course? You don't run hard up the hill and then slow into a jog. You've got to learn how to recover while still going fast after you just went up that hill. These flux type, type hill workouts are the perfect way to do that.
1: Yeah, and that's the misnomer, right? Is like recovery on the hill is a, or an off the hill or coming off the hill is about managing your cadence, your pace, your speed, or whatever you want to call it. But in a state that allows and enough time that allows that buffering or clearance to happen while still going at a high um, you know, tempo. And that's, that's the difficult skill, right? Like I used to do hill repeats and that was it. We just run up the hill, come back down. Very traditional. This kind of linear style flux workout of hill flat steadiness, downhill flat steadiness, then stop and repeat. That is flux training in disguise like that. I mean, that's Lydia's hill phase in a, in a nutshell, friends. So all you gotta do is just find a flat portion, a hilly portion, a flat portion again at the top and if you don't have that then just turn right around and then just finish with flat again because you're then you're giving the athlete a lot of exposure and dimension
0: Uh, exactly i mean that's what it's that's what it's all about all right john why don't you throw us another one
1: all right uh, another good one is for 800 meter runners You know, a lot of people look at the 800 as this anaerobic, quote unquote, type event or glycolytic type event, which it is, but it also has a very high aerobic content as well. So, you know, what we do when we think of traditional 800 meter workouts, right? Well, we just think of lots of fast and really hard 200s. Nothing wrong with that at all, right? Really fast and hard 200s. However, what we want to do, right, is teach someone how to buffer really, really high degrees of acidity on the fly and try to either maintain a tempo or increase a tempo or a cadence or a pace, right? So one of the um, applications I had with this is what I call fast, faster, fastest for 150. So we go fast, faster, fastest, where we do 150 meters and they start off at fast. So that's gonna be like 1500 meter pace for 50 meters. The next 50 meters they accelerate and surge to 800 meter pace. And then the last 50 meters they're at like as fast as they can go. And then they hit the finish line and then they got to go for 150 meters float before they finish. So it ends up being 300 meters, right? So 150 accelerating from 1500 meter pace to 800 meter or 400 meter pace in 50 uh, meter increments, and then a 150 meter float and then break. So what does that do? Well, it, so a so crap ton of lactate in the system real fast because <laughs> you just basically are sprinting for the first half of it. And then on the fly for a very manageable, especially for 800 meter runners, chunk of time, right? It ends up being roughly about 30 seconds, give or take, depending on the 800 meter athlete you're working with. But it, it, in a low stakes way, it then creates this clearance while being active um stimulus that then helps encourage more metabolic flexibility and it's really tough at first really tough but what ends up happening is it get better and better and better and then what do i do well then coach makes it harder coach says all right here's what we're going to do we're going to do the same drill fast faster fastest for 150 and it the, the the rest interval or the float interval if you will shrinks to 50 meters and then we do two in a row three in a row four in a row of that on 50 so it ends up being two hundreds right so we're doing 150 plus 50 meter quote-unquote float and so we get the 200s in and i usually do like either chunks of two to four in a set so four times 200 to two times 200 but then they come super super robust at being able to handle that injection of glycolysis or lactate in acidosis, that happens because in 800, it is a, you know, deceleration event. You're trying not to decelerate less than your competitors. And they, they seem to have a kick at the end, which means they're just, you know, not decelerating as much as their peers because they're still able to, again, process some of this metabolic flexibility on the fly in a really, really corrosive and difficult environment.
0: I love that. I love the, I love the, at the end adding in 150 meter float or cruise or whatever you want to call it at the end, because it, there's this temptation after we run hard and workouts to just stop, right. And shut it down. And you see that temptation as people ease across the line and just like, oh my gosh, let me get hands on knees and, and start breathing. Cause I can't handle it. And I think there's something very cool is it's, it's, it's teaching people how to how to kind of slow down well which if you look at an 800 what is it but an 800 i used to tell my athletes this it's the last 200 is who dies the best <laughs> yes <laughs> because no one in the 800 if you look at the splits almost unless it's a tactical again but no one in their their you know pr race whatever uh generally um Runs to the last two hundred the fastest.
1: Usually, the last two hundred is always the slowest of the entire yep. race. If you take two hundred splits,
0: right? Yep, exactly. So it's like, how do you learn how to slow down well, or die well, or what have you? And I think a little bit of this is how to deal with that, the build up, etc., without freaking out. And one of the ways, I love that fast, faster, fastest, and then into that. That kind of float is it doesn't force you to do it at the, you know, hold on to things, but it forces your body to kind of like utilize it and get used to just having a little of that pressure on, uh, which is great.
1: Yeah. And it's really effective. And the thing is, is right, it's not quite as um, corrosive on the athlete as, um, say, doing a really highly acidic and inv- um, inducing workout or something of that nature.
0: Absolutely. I love that. Good stuff. Yeah. What about you, Steve? You know, one of my favorite ones is actually a very old school workout, but I think it considers the flux um, and it's something high school coaches uh, do very well. And I was introduced to it in high school by my high school coach, and that's what he would call like the endless relays of 200s. And traditionally, often, if you look at programs, you'll do like, oh, 200 repeats for rhythm, speed, etc. And you'll run 200 and either stand there or jog 200 and you'll just do 10, 12, 16, 20 of 200 repeats, right? Um, The endless relays is simply, what is it? You're moving the start of your 200 to the middle of the track so that then you run your 200. You tag your partner, they run your 200, and your rest is jogging across the infield. And because if you, you're you with someone who's really, you know, if you're doing this at a college or a high school level, you've got 30 seconds or about to jog across the infield. Right after 200, you know you have to go not a slow trot, but you've got to kind of cruise over there um, in order to make it before your partner gets there. And I love this kind of subtle shift because what it does is is it allows us to, again, run fast, but in a very short period, only 200 meters, but really use the rest period to kind of challenge the aerobic system to kind of recover, deal with the lactate, et cetera, and other byproducts and get back into that rhythm. It's a great what I call rhythm workout because like... If you get out of the rhythm, you're gonna you're gonna die. <laughs> if you miss miss the pace or the rhythm and try and go too fast at the beginning or what have you, it's gonna come back and bite you because the rest is again kind of cruising and very short, thirty seconds or less normally. Um, so that's again my kind of variation on two hundred meter repeats is to do the endless relay style, um, and I think this is it also, one of the reasons I love this is it brings some kind of fun and competitiveness to athletes. As you take a workout, you take it off of the kind of, okay, everyone we're lining up to do 16 by 200s. Instead, we're going to do a relay. Um, and it brings a little bit of kind of playfulness and competitiveness into practice.
1: Yeah. I love that so much. I mean, it's, uh, You know, bringing that that dimension of playfulness and competitiveness in practice is huge. And sometimes we forget, right, that that's really, really important um, to manifest and also just to, you know, keep it fun and interesting and, you know, dynamic for those athletes.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's what it is. And I think that's also what kind of flux training is about is it changes things up. And I'm going to go a different direction. I'm in, At the beginning, I mentioned our 20-minute tempo as kind of the straightforward uh, traditional one. I think in this case with Flux training, you can take this tempo and do all sorts of cool stuff, right? You can um, do Canova-style alternations where instead of a 20-minute tempo, You go 800 on, 800 off for three, four miles, depending on the group, or you're just going a little faster than that tempo. Let's say your tempo is five-minute pace, maybe you go 225 for the on 800, and then 240 for the off. And what you're doing here is where a traditional tempo is kind of riding that lactate threshold. Here what you're doing is you're throwing in a little bit of that lactate and then saying I'm going to take the pressure off enough to learn how to train, utilize, deal with this at a at a high level. So I love that kind of variation in it. Another variation for kind of flux training for um uh, for tempos is going back to hills that I talked about, is if you have this hilly course, I love doing these tempos on hills by feel and letting the hill be kind of the hard flux part. And what I mean by that is you don't have to really change anything, but when you go up a hill, you're going to automatically increase that kind of strength and fatigue component which is going to put a little bit more lactate into the system, often push you a little over that lactate threshold. But then when you get up the hill and you're kind of back into that rhythm, right, you settle back into that tempo threshold rhythm. Well, now you learn how to recover and deal with that until you hit the next hill. And again, I'm in Houston, don't have a ton of hills, but we would use, especially when I was coaching high school, we had this five mile hill loop, which had, I don't know, four or five hills on it. And we'd say, hey, here's the effort. I want you to keep this kind of effort and um, going and, you know, kind of push the hills a little bit to a degree because we'd get this natural kind of flux period because what would happen? you'd go a little bit harder up the hill or even just to kind of maintain that pace or even effort a little bit you'd go a little bit harder and then you'd inevitably have to you know keep things going but you'd recover on the the downhill or whatever you're doing so it created this natural flux environment for traditional tempos
1: yeah i love that so much you know it's just reminding ourselves that like flux is a state of mind and a state of being in a way of thinking about training versus like a workout we do here and there. Um, And I think that's the big, big takeaway, you know, as I've gotten more comfortable with flux and the concept of flux is that it is just a way of thinking about training and preparing the athlete, not just metabolically, but also uh, emotionally, um, you know, and uh, intelligently to be able to like race in the the crucible and dynamic that is training the training environment.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's, (laughs) that's how I like to think of it is like, Flux is knowing how to, you know, it's not some fancy thing. We can use our environment to shift things as well, (laughs) not just, you know, the things that we control. And actually, I, you know, that's why the OG of Flux is, what is it? Fartlek training. You know? Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, that's what it is, is you're alternating stuff. And original fartlek training wasn't just you know, interval training off the track, like sometimes it is now, right. Like the original <laughs> fartlek training was I have this loop and I've got some hills and I'm going to run up parted and then I'm going to run steady and then I'm going to run easy and then I'm going to go hard, you know, on this field and, you know, whatever have you like that, that's where it kind of came from. It's no different than, you know, uh, Sarity's kind of, Uh, loops on his uh, sand dunes and figuring out how to run hard and when to run steady and easy and using the environment to kind of dictate those things.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, as we get more conditioned to it or understand it or more exposure to it, and that's what we're seeing like in the clubhouse, like it's through all the dialogues of different coaches at, at different levels applying it or asking questions about it. We get more comfortable with it. And as we get more comfortable with it, because we've seen it more, uh, we can apply it to better benefit to our athletes in different environments. So that's, you know, I think always something to keep top of mind with something that's a little novel and new at first is it's just about exposure, 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 but it works. Steve and I would not be so excited about it, would not be so like animate about it if it didn't work. And if we didn't think it worked a little bit better than the maybe traditional ways um, that still work. But again, we're always trying to play that balance of how much learning exposure can we get for an athlete at a certain pace? Because there's also that neuromuscular component, that brain component, that biomotor component about running a certain tempo, whether it's fresh or fatigued or heavily fatigued that we underestimate, right? And in the polarized training model, we do a lot of work on one day. So only train the brain for a very short period of time about a pace that we wanna run for a race. And then we don't do anything for a long time. We don't teach the brain anything around that pace. We go super easy. We got to recover. We got to replenish. We got to do all this stuff, and we do it again. And it's really polarized. But when we think about motor learning and development, it's not enough. Looks at the pace. It's not enough attempts. It's not enough practice. Not enough rehearsal. I always point to um, you know our uh, Clause's method of the easy interval um, because if you look at Clause in 1980 before the Dutch um, cross-country championships, which he won for the second time, every single day, except the day before, he ran, quote-unquote, fast. And sometimes he ran fast, quote-unquote, twice in a day. K repeats, 400s, 200s, fast. And he did that on the daily and then wins the cross-country championships. There was no polarization because he had the epiphany, what he calls easy interval, is just another... Form of flux training. He's like, I need to run fast every day to get fast. It, it was a really simple epiphany, and his application of it wasn't this like over um, heavy buffet of fast paced stuff. It was micro dosing it essentially throughout the day. You'd look at it now, and it's he's basically doing double lactate sessions. You know, you look at it now, and you go, Oh my gosh, yeah, it's so revolutionary. But this is back in 1980. And sometimes we forget things that work really well because something else came along that had an easier measure, whether it was heart rate, pulse, you name it, and then we, um, you know, we lose those things to history. So that's why it's super valuable to remember, like this stuff has been around forever, and it works really, really well.
0: Well, you know, it's it it goes back to the same epiphanies Adipic had, which is if you look at his training, people often think like, oh, he runs 400 re- repeats, and we we evaluate it through our modern lens and we think 400 meter repeats, hard anaerobic. And you think you look, no, this dude is essentially doing, you know, at sometimes double thresholds where he's doing, you know, 40 400s in the morning and then the same in the evening or what have you. And those 400s are relatively slow. They're like, you know, 72, 75, you know, 70, what have you. Um, which for again, how fast that a pack was like, isn't, Isn't that quick? Like he was essentially doing, you know, double threshold flux style training with short rest and lots of uh, 400s.
1: Yeah. All right. Two more examples, Steve, and then I think we have covered the whole catalog. So now the question everyone wants answered flux style workouts for the marathon. I'm going to let you handle that because you're the marathon man.
0: (laughs) All right. The marathon. Actually, these are my favorite ones because. I think in the marathon, um, what it does is it allows us a to get to enjoy the workout a little bit better than just saying, "Hey, go run ten miles at marathon pace and see what happens." Um, but b it allows us to further the adaptations a little bit because we get used to surging and slowing, and we also get used to going a little bit over our pace. And getting a little junk into the system and our energetics, maybe a little over the top of what we can handle and over the whole course, but then bringing it back down. So here, I love doing long alternations. So you could could start with mile on, mile off. So let's say someone has a goal marathon pace of 520. We might go mile at 510, mile at 530-ish, you know, and alternate that for, I don't know, eight miles total. And then what I like to do is bring that up a little bit where we then go maybe two miles on, one mile off, three miles on, one mile off. And then I love, because I am weird like this, I love adding a little mix into it where maybe now it's three miles on, one mile off, but instead you're fluxing within those quote unquote three miles on. So you might go, I don't know, uh, five, five 30 520 510 540 and then repeat that cycle because you're getting that variation in there and I think that works again really freaking well for developing the uh, aerobic endurance for the marathon.
1: yeah I love it I mean it's uh, you know it's it's not easy because in the marathon too you also got remember love them are like cross-country courses where it's not flat as a pancake unless you're running like Berlin or something like that, right? Like there's going to be hills, there's going to be terrain, especially for people who want to do like Boston or New York or some of those bigger ones. You know, you got to have that factored in to be able to have that metabolic flexibility to recover on the fly and train for it.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's what it is. And I think even on the even pace, you know, if you're training for even pace, what happens is like – Yes, you need to learn how to lock into the rhythm, but when you get variation above and below that pace, it gives you a more kind of robust system to handle, again, good patches, surges, slowdowns, rough patches, because you've you become efficient at navigating this whole kind of gamut of paces versus sometimes when you do everything at marathon pace, you become really efficient at running 520 pace. But as soon as that, that pace shifts... It's almost like, hey, this feels awkward. What are we doing? And chances are, as a runner, you've probably experienced that before, where you've had, I don't know, six-minute pace feel good, but you run 620 pace, and you're like, what is this? Like, this feels awkward. I either need to run 640 pace or six-minute pace. And the reason often is because we haven't spent enough time in the gamut of paces to understand that so our body kind of gets metabolically and biomechanically fluid at those efforts so that's why i use like using kind of these flux trainings as well to kind of get comfortable at the myriad of paces we're likely to experience in the marathon
1: yeah you know what's interesting is in the marathon right there's this concept of you guys are trying to even pace the whole endeavor or outing or within a very short um tolerance of a window, right? So we got to run 520. So we got to run 525 or six flat, whatever. But when you look at professionals when they're racing, and I always think of like Hendrik Ramallah in the New York City Marathon in the early 2000s, like that's not the case. Medko Kofletsky, that's not the case. They're, they will drop a 420 bomb in the middle of the race <laughs> very frequently, right? But they have the metabolic flexibility to then be able to you know, quote unquote, ease off the gas pedal back to that tempo that they're running prior to that, like say five flat and not completely blow up. And so we, we end up doing ourselves a disservice, I think in marathon training, when we just over on the goal pace without giving them the tolerance or ro- metabolic robustness to endure and handle a little faster injection and then be able to, you know, recover. So, quote unquote, or buffer or clear on the fly. And that's what these alternations, which again, Canova's alternations in the marathon are essentially uh, flux training style work. So last one real quick in the gym flux style training, it's called iron cardio. You can do the same type of work with quote unquote circuits, right? Medicine balls. So this is a really apical one that I, you know, that I did with my high school kids. This track season is at the end of practice, uh, traditionally three times a week during non-race weeks. We would then do medicine ball circuits. But there was flux training in disguise, really, right? But in another another more general way um, from a motor output standpoint, but from a metabolic standpoint, the exact same. So what it was was essentially this. We'd slam a medicine ball, like overhead slams, floor slams with a medicine ball for 15 seconds, as hard as they could. They got 10 seconds recovery. Just catch your breath, okay. And then the next drill would be squat, jump, toss. So they squat, jump, and toss the medicine ball up air. Do that for 15 seconds, right? And then the next drill would be side to side slams or lateral slams. And we do that as a circuit. You start to average it out, right? It's 15, 25 seconds per drill. And we do that either two cycles or three cycles and then take a break. So when you start to do the math on that, you go 15 seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 10 seconds. That's about 75 seconds of work for one cycle. Um, And then you do two cycles. Well, you got about, you know, uh, just about three minutes or so of good quality work here, two and a half minutes. And then you take two minutes rest and you do it again. And again, you can do as many different drills as you want where it's high threshold motor output, right? You're slamming a medicine ball in some way, shape or form or jumping. But you're taking razor-thin recovery to again keep that dynamic going in a different motor pattern, also different fiber recruitments because you're using the arms and the the back more than the legs, and it's just a nice complement at the end of the day. Maybe if you're not doing a workout day, but a way to kind of just keep keep that motor and rev that engine and keep that flux capacity or flux ability warm.
0: Awesome. I think that's I think that's awesome. I think it gets into again. Different athletes and coaches from Bowerman to Canova to everybody who's used circuits as a variations of them to kind of get this flux capacity. So there we go. A bunch of traditional workouts where you can add a twist on it. That doesn't mean you have to completely get rid of those traditional workouts you love so much. It just means start experimenting, start trying different ways to add kind of these flux components and change the stimulus and adaptation a little bit. And you might surprise yourself with some, um, you know, awesome results.
1: Yeah. The key thing to remember is flux is a state of mind and it's a set of principles. It's not a workout you do here or there. And when you make that leap and make that shift, it's a whole new world. It's really awesome. It's a lot of fun. And the best place to do that, of course, is the Scholar Program, the Clubhouse. We talk about this daily. I answer questions, you know, whether it's in direct message, calling a coach up, chatting through it a little bit, and also our weekly live stream Q and A talk. And of course, of course, of course, the granddaddy of flux training, the Igloi course that Steve, you know, so so well put together. That will give you the foundation to understand how the master did it, and how you too can do it too.
0: That's right. We are not the masters at this. Learn from the greats. We've outlined it. So check it out. Thanks everybody for listening. And until next time, keep on coaching.